if you've got a Bible with you, I'd like to turn to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, and chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, forgive me for a rather lengthy reading, but it's important, really, in, what, in terms of what we're going to be looking at. So, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush doesn't burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to me, has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? And what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, 
the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he'll let you go. And I'll make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave you will not go empty-handed every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you'll put on your sons and daughters and so you will plunder the Egyptians chapter begins the story begins there Moses tending the flock of Jethro his father-in-law the priest of Midian Chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus compress into a very short space. We obviously couldn't read all of that. Quite a dramatic story. I'm sure most of you will know the story. For any who don't, it's the, in those early two chapters, you read of uh, the, the Hebrews. They're in Egypt. They are an underclass, under, a second-class citizens. If that, they're a slave people. They've grown, the Egyptians fear their numbers and so the Egyptians keep them oppressed and they are just slave labor and it's cruel but the the numbers of the Hebrews are growing and the Egyptians decide some population control is necessary and so the edict goes out that the midwives among the Hebrews are to kill any male children one child is saved his mother hides him this is Moses hides him uh, away and the, uh, the romantic story, one of Pharaoh's daughters finds him, raises her, him as her own son. And so Moses grows up as someone who belongs in two worlds, or in another way doesn't belong in either. He's a Hebrew, but he's brought up in Pharaoh's household. Where does he belong? Well, he's being groomed for leadership. He would have had a, a good education for a military career or something, he would, certainly would have been a leader. Doesn't really belong. He belongs among the Hebrews, and yet, for the, as far as the Hebrews are concerned, he's an Egyptian. As far as the Egyptians are concerned, he's a Hebrew. Doesn't belong in either world. He goes to visit his people. He sees an Egyptian ill-treating one of the Hebrews. He kills the Egyptian. Another time, he sees two Hebrews arguing. He can't understand why they're fighting each other. He intervenes and discovers that they know about him killing an Egyptian. And the news of that reaches Pharaoh. Moses has to flee. And he then can't stop being the hero. He arrives out in the desert and he sees a group of attractive girls. He doesn't say they're attractive, but I'm sure they were for the sake of the story. He sees a group of attractive girls. Uh, they're drawing water out of a well to... Uh, give water to their flocks and some ruffian shepherds come to drive these girls away and Moses sweeps in to rescue them drives away the ruffians not only uh, saves the girls from being driven away he gets the water out he waters all their flock they're so grateful they take him home he falls in love he gets married and he lives there it says during verse 23 uh, uh, of chapter 2 during that long period for a long time then he is out there looking after sheep 
Egypt forgotten. The book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, it tells us that that long period was 40 years. Of course, we don't know how long their years were in relation to our own, but 40 years is roughly a generation. And indeed, it says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. Yes, it's a new generation. Moses now just looking after sheep. Forty years go by, and it looks like Moses is off the scene, Moses forgotten, just looking after sheep. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. God's master plan, however, is still working through. Time has passed 40 years, but God's master plan is still working through. Life is never random. God reigns all the time, and God is working in Moses' life. So this long period, 40 years, looking after sheep until he comes across this bush that is on fire and yet not burning. Curiously, the heading in the, my version here, and indeed, I guess in all versions, calls it the burning bush, which is a bit odd because that's the one thing it wasn't doing. It's on fire and yet not burning. And it's that that gets Moses' attention flames licking this bush and yet it's not turning black it's not getting burnt and there he encounters God God gets his attention 40 years have passed it looks like he's forgotten it's, if God ever had any purposes for him those purposes are long since lost he might have thought but when nothing seems to be happening a lot is about to happen that's often how God works. Between the Old and New Testaments, there was an interval of some 430 years that the Jews recognized was a time of prophetic silence. They knew that the, the prophets were no longer on the scene. 430 years in which God didn't appear to be speaking anymore. And then suddenly, there was a man sent from God whose name was John sometimes a long time and it looks like nothing's happening but God's plan is still working through and God's plan is still working through in this man Moses even though time is passing in the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 30 Isaiah 30 and verse 18 there's a wonderful verse um, the translation doesn't help us particularly but in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18, in this version, it says, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. A more literal translation, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. The Lord waits to be gracious and that's what he's doing with Moses. He's waiting. Why to be gracious? You see, had God used Moses as significantly as he was about to, had he used him like that 40 years previously, well, Moses was being trained for that. Moses was being trained for leadership. He was 
learning all the leadership skills he needed to do the job. And so had he done the job, it would have been because of his training. It would have been because he was ideally qualified to do it. What a great man Moses is. Forty years to get all of that out of his system. Forty years to come to a place where all he can do is look after sheep. And all the, all the bravado it had as a young man, when he leaps in to rescue people, he leaps in to drive away those shepherds, all of that's gone now. He just looks after sheep. Now it's grace. Previously, it would have been skill. It would have been his training. Now it's grace. The Lord waits to be gracious. God's always got time on his side. We are so impatient, we know when we're ready for something or whatever. No, God's got time on his side. And God is waiting to be gracious. Blessed are all who wait for him. Moses had to learn to wait for God. Forty years of boredom, looking after sheep out in the desert. And now God comes in. He waits to be gracious. The Bible says that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Moses, as a young man, I guess, because of the strange, the uniqueness of the way he'd been brought up, I, I guess he craved affirmation. He craved acceptance. All of that now is out of him. He's just learned to be a nobody. Ah, now he's usable. It can be grace. Pride is such a prevalent and subtle and dangerous thing. God opposes the proud. Someone has said pride is the, the devil's business card. You know, where there's pride, yeah, the devil's visited. He's been around. And it had to be eradicated from Moses, and indeed we see it had been as this story works through. So God comes to him, God speaks with him, gets his attention at the burning bush, and there or the non-burning bush, rather. Um, that is indeed what it is, so you don't mind marking your Bible. If it says burning bush, just write the little word non above it, because that was actually what it was about. It's much more remarkable that any bush can burn, but this is a, 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 a bush engulfed in flames that is not burning. But God gets his attention, and God speaks with him. And in verse 7, God says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt, I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned. Or a more literal translation, I have seen, I have heard, and I know. God says, I know about their sufferings. It's, it's a word that means much more than just knowing about. And hence they translated, I'm concerned about. You know, sometimes people ask, or very often people ask me to give them a reference. And you get this reference form and it says, how long have you known the applicants? You say, six years or whatever. Then it starts asking questions about them. How did they react in this situation? How did they react in that? And you think, I've just put, I've known them for six years. And now these questions are showing me, I don't actually know them. There's knowing about and there's knowing. And it's that second meaning of the word here, God says, I know their sufferings. Hence, I don't say, I'm concerned about it. He doesn't just know about it. 
God knows it. He's intimately involved. When it looked like God was absent, all those years that the Hebrews have been suffering in Egypt, where's God? God says, I know. I'm involved. God waits. Time is on his side. He says, I have indeed seen. I have heard. And I know. I know. I know their suffering. God is very present. It says their cry, verse 9, uh, verse 9 there, it says, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. In the end of the previous chapter, it says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned or and knew them. He was involved with them. Their cry reached him, and now he's announcing that to Moses. I have heard. I've seen. I've heard, and I'm concerned. I know about it. And then the better news even, he says, um, I have come down. I've come down to do something about it. In verse 8, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land. I have come down to rescue them. He doesn't say, I've come down to encourage them or I've come down to comfort them. He says, I've come down to rescue them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And that's the beginning of a story that then goes right through the entire Bible. This is our God. This is the God who comes down to rescue. Obviously, this is foreshadowing what we read in the New Testament, where the Lord Jesus Christ literally came down to rescue us out of the hand of the one who oppresses us, to release captives from oppression. That is our God. In his time, he does that. He is the Redeemer. He is the Savior. And he's revealing himself as that to Moses here. This then is foreshadowing the Savior who will come down to rescue captives from the tyranny of demons, of infirmities, and sin, our, our master. God comes to rescue. And not only to deliver from, but deliver into, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. It's a strange description of a country, isn't it? A land flowing with milk and honey. If you take it literally, you think, what a strange place. Milk running everywhere? Or what's it, why does it say, a land flowing with milk and honey? I guess what it's saying is, it's not just the essentials. What you need for survival, well, you need water. No, it's not just water, it's going to be milk. And you need bread, and it's going to be honey. It's sweet, it's, it's luxury, if you like. This is a good and spacious land. Out of a land of being oppressed where they had to fight for survival into a land where there's more than you could possibly imagine, more than you could possibly actually need. A good land, extravagantly good and free. Going to give it to you. Other people currently occupy it. The Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and so on, they currently occupy it. They will be dispossessed. 
and I will give it to you, God says. A wonderful promise for people who have got nothing, who are just clutching onto life by, the, by their fingernails. God says, I'm going to bring you out, and I'm going to take you in to something that is wonderful again, foreshadowing what we see in the New Testament. God doesn't just save us so that we are forgiven. He saves us into himself, into knowing him, into knowing his love, into blessing. One blessing after another is how the New Testament describes it. This is our God, a God of extravagant generosity. So Moses was minding his own business, or minding his own sheep as it happens. And suddenly, God intervenes and starts announcing this incredible good news. And it's exciting, certainly very interesting, but it is good news. And then suddenly, you get to the bad news. Well, as far as Moses was concerned. So Moses is listening to all of this. Hey, the Hebrews are going to be set free. They're going to have their own country. It's going to be a prosperous place. This is wonderful. Why are you telling me? You might have thought. Ah. So, verse 10. Now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Ah. Why is Moses where he is? To get as far away from Pharaoh as possible. That's why he's there in the wilderness. That's why he's there looking after sheep. And God says, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. The bad news. Everything had been very interesting and exciting information up to that point. And now suddenly, a massive challenge. Because the plan isn't going to just happen. It needs a messenger. It needs someone to go and make it happen. Someone to announce it to those who will listen. Verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Well, that's encouraging but also to announce it to those who won't listen. Verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. Moses is being sent into something that he is going to find incredibly difficult and something for which he would feel he is certainly not qualified. Hence his response in verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Forty years previously, his response, I guess, would have been very different. Forty years previously, his response might well have been, oh, I see now why I've had all this training. But that's not the response now. Who am I? Now, in a way, that is a good response. It's God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And Moses' response there is certainly a humble response. He, it's good that he sees his inability, and it's good, therefore, that recognizing inability, he might cast himself totally on God and say, I need you. But actually, that's not the nature of his response, because as it works through into the next chapter, 
it gets to the point, verse 14 of chapter 4, where we read, the Lord's anger burned against Moses, because Moses comes out, comes clean in verse 13 of chapter 4, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. He can't face it. And the reason he can't face it is because of this question, who am I? Who am I? He thinks he is the issue. God is saying, I'm going to send you. Well, then I've got to be able to do it, he's thinking. And he is questioning himself. And actually, his question is a very common kind of question today. People are fascinated, it seems to me, with who they are. Self-awareness. Let's work through a questionnaire to discover who I really am. Let's discover what my strengths are and my weaknesses. Let's see what I'm qualified for. Self-awareness in order to build self-esteem, which is a polite term course, for pride. Self-confidence, to be able to assert myself, to know what I'm gifted for. Who am I? Is the big question. Isn't it sad? Well, I think it's sad. You see this in the church. Obviously, people want to know, what is my spiritual gift? That could be a good question, of course, but unless it's, who am I? But isn't it sad that the prophetic gift that is meant to build up the body, so often moves away from building up the body to becoming personal words. Have you ever been in one of those meetings where there's a guy called, that person over there, that person over there, and you well, they call me. Instead of the body, building up the body, it's a, the personal word. You're going to have an international ministry. I wasn't pointing at anyone there. You're going to have a, an international ministry. God has called you to be a leader. You will, you will go to nations. You will speak to kings. You know. Yes. And then, of course, resentment against the elders who don't seem to recognize this high calling. But it becomes very personal. Who am I? And that's Moses' question. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? It can be pride. It can be extreme unbelief. Who am I? God's answer turns it round. God's answer in verse 14, Moses says, who am I? And God replies, I am. I am who I am. Moses, it's not about who you are. It's actually about who I am, says God. Moses has needed 40 years to get rid of who he is, to come to a place where he can trust who God is. And where his, all his confidence is going to be based on who God is and not who he is. That's a massive lesson. A massive lesson. It doesn't come naturally to us. It only comes to us on the basis of revelation because we're so aware of who we are or who we're not. Aware of our background, aware of our advantages or our disadvantages. We're profoundly aware of ourselves. But actually, God wants us to be much, much more aware of Him. That's why we come to a time like this to, to worship God together, to focus on Him, 
where it's all about you, not all about me. And yet we can even come into a worship time focusing very much on ourselves. Is there anything for me? Is there a word of encouragement for me? So I feel good about myself, about him. I am who I am. A strange name for God. Moses says, suppose I say to the, go to the Israelites and say, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they say, what's his name? What, so what's your name, God? And God says, I am who I am. God is the one who eternally exists. He is self-sufficient. He is defined by himself. I am who I am. Hence, what is happening with this bush that is on fire. Fire depends, of course, on flammable material. There's got to be something to burn for a fire to exist. And when there's no longer anything to burn, the fire goes out. And here is a fire that is not burning anything. God is revealing himself as the one who doesn't need anything, who doesn't need anyone. His power rests on people. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And of course, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in what seemed like tongues of fire that settled on them, not burning them up. Again, energy, power, resting on, but not needing. God doesn't need us. Interestingly, of course, I refer to the day of Pentecost because today is the day of Pentecost. Did you realize that? And so that'd be a far better reason for explaining why both congregations are here. They were all together in one place. But you missed that one. <laughs> and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. Power from on high. Who am I? It doesn't matter who I am. What matters is who God is and what God can do with people who are not relying on themselves. Moses had so lost self-reliance that he actually strays over into total unbelief. Now, we need to lose our self-reliance but come to a place where we believe God. And Moses has to be coached by God, rebuked by God, into a place where he'll actually believe God. But who is our God? He's the one whose power is not dependent on us. And it is natural to us, not only individually, but as churches, to look to see our resources, to see what we can do. And there's a certain amount of sense in that of course you don't want to overreach yourself but at the same time in another way you do want to overreach yourself to be stepping out on what God does unless God shows up unless God does it we fall flat on our faces that's a good place to be and Moses is being called to do something he says I can't do this who am I Maybe he's still got memories of what happened 40 years previously. How dare he go back to Egypt? They'll kill him. 
His own people will reject him. The Egyptians are out for his life. And God is saying, I want you to go right into the lion's den. I want you to go to Pharaoh. Who am I? And God says, I am. It's a massive plan that God is giving him. Verse 16 onwards, assemble the elders. Tell them the Lord, the God of your fathers, has appeared to me. Moses is to tell them about this great promise to come out of the misery of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders will listen. Then you and the elders go to the king of Egypt. Say to him, let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. I mean, what a cheeky thing to ask. The slave people involved in all these building projects. We want to go for three days into the desert. Yes, you're not coming back if you do that, are you? I mean, it's, what a cheeky thing to say. And hence, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. Moses, I'm sending you to preach to your people and then when they believe you, to take some of them and go to the king and then you're effectively going to threaten the king and you're going to be a man of signs and wonders. I'm going to stretch out my hand as you go and speak to the king and I'm going to do such mighty things it will force his hand so that they go, Moses is saying, I look after sheep. I can't do that. I am who I am. We don't scale down what's possible to what is possible for us. We must look at what does the Bible say about God he is our God, and we do what he says. We don't scale it down to what is feasible. It's a huge plan. And then I'm going to make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people. Come on. So that when you leave, which you will, you won't go empty-handed. You're going to plunder them, and you're going to take all their precious things and go. <laughs> what? An incredible plan. And going into this new land, it's, uh, this is my name forever, a name which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. This is a plan that goes on and on, nation changing for generations. It is simply massive. But God says, I'll be with you. Verse 12, I will be with you. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ has given us a massive commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. I will be with you, he said. The same as what he says to Moses. It is massive. It is absolutely massive. Um, the plan is massive, but the help is also massive. I will be with you. He says, I will stretch out my hand. When God's hand is stretched out, what's possible? What's possible? Moses was going to discover it. And he's going to discover it when he stretches out his own hand. And when he stretches out his hand, God stretches out his. Nothing would have happened 
unless Moses had been willing to go. How much is waiting to happen today when we are willing to do what God says, to believe him, to take him at his word, to refuse to scale things down to what is feasible in the 21st century in Great Britain. Uh, this is God. I am who I am. And then God gives him a little sign, which when you look at it, actually was not that helpful. Verse 12, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Because obviously, if Moses is going to summon up the courage to actually get an audience with Pharaoh, it would be very helpful to have a sign to know God is with him. And God says, I'm going to give you a sign. Well, that's great, until you see what the sign was. This will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. It's a bit late to get the sign then. The sign that this is God is when you've done it all and it's successful. Well, he doesn't really need... Well, God is saying, really, I will do it. And I will bring the people back to this place, this very mountain where you have encountered me, the whole nation will be there. In other words, the only way that Moses can do this is simply by faith in what God has said. He's simply got to know that God has said it and therefore he will do it. The evidence will be there when he's done it, not before. And that's how faith works. So God is coming to this man who started with such promise, had such potential, such prospects, and it all comes tragically to an end. And then there's nothing except looking after sheep. That wasn't what he was trained to do. That wasn't what he was groomed for. Forty years. It's a long time. God waits to be gracious. I wonder if there are some here who are just in When's the big break coming? Maybe you've had prophecies over you. When's it going to happen? Yeah, the Lord waits. Time's on his side. He waits to be gracious. Blessed are those who wait for him. But while it looks like God's doing nothing, God is active. His plan is working. I have seen. I have heard. I know. The cry of these people. They're crying out. I don't think anyone's listening. God says, I'm listening. And God responds to the cry. As I was thinking about this morning, praying about this morning, I thought, I wonder what cry reaches our sovereign God from Birmingham. The streets of Birmingham. Some of maybe the most difficult areas where there's real suffering, poverty, violence, and we can maybe think the government ought to do something, the local authority. The cry reaches God. And he says, perhaps to his people this morning, saying, you, go. I have seen, I have heard, I know. God hears the cry. The people just, they don't know they're calling to God. Oh, who's got to do something? Help. He hears it. 
And his response is always his people. The answer always comes through people. And the people he uses is church. Through the church that his wonderful wisdom is made known. He's heard the cry. And then the, the commission comes. And you can look at the scale of the need and say, who am I? Who are we? This is a great church, but it's a little church compared with the population of this great conurbation. Who are we? It's not, that's the wrong question. I am who I am, God says. And because God is who he is, a whole nation came out of slavery, plundering their oppressors. That's God. What does God want to do today? What cry is reaching his ears? What concerns him? What does he want to do in this city? And it's not, I want a personal word. What's he saying to his church? What does he want his people together to do? Moses, you know, his humility was actually unbelief. The Lord's anger burned against him. Never let your humility become unbelief. It's, oh God, I trust you. Now, God, you are the God who sends fire on a bush so it's not burned. You've got energy that doesn't depend on us. You are the God of the day of Pentecost. You are the God who came on a little group of people and caused them to turn the world upside down. You are that God. I am who I am. Who am I? Wrong question. God, who are you? I believe who you are. And I believe what you say. And therefore, I will be quick to respond to you. 